All right. Are you ready, Jason? Oh, yeah. And no do worries. I say your name, Cher? Um, or Cher? Cher. 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 Yeah, but it's okay. It, nobody gets it right. And I've even told my kids, they said, you know, it's probably, it's kind of funny because people, you know, when we were kids, people would make fun of your name, right? And I told them, I said, dude, you're lucky because if you were just, you know, uh, a normal name, it'd be hard for people to remember you. But because it's like, you know, there's been jokes and people like, you know, your name's always that people like pay attention to it. So you, you'll be remembered, remembered for it, you know. So I've tried to turn it around for them. But normally I say share um, like Dave Cole probably five or six years ago. Actually, it wasn't. It was the Flarsky brothers that uh, are really good friends of ours. And they said they did a little video and they said uh, it was like one of those animated videos. And it was hilarious. The whole video was hilarious because it was like the theor- the theme was like some guys like, hey, I'm going to go to the Hammers this year. And they're like, oh, that's great. And he said, you know, he's trying to tell his girlfriend or wife this. And she's like, okay, but your rig's not even finished. And he's like, oh, I know we're going to finish it on the lake bed. And I'm going to go meet a bunch of my friends out there. And she's like, have you ever met any of these friends? She's like, no, they're all on Pirate 4x4. I know them from there. And she's like, so you don't even know their real names? You just know their pirate user handle? And he's like, well, yeah, and he's like, but we're going to get into the race through the last chance qualifier and race, and and it goes on and on and on. And then he goes, yeah, and she goes, you think you're going to be as fast as share? <laughs> and it just keeps going, and so then it became a nickname. And so then Dave would introduce me at the driver's meeting and be like, Jason, share, and it hasn't ended. So it's been like five or six years, and uh, everybody remembers the name now because of it, but I think it's... You know, it's great. I I love it. Like if I had, you know, hadn't had that, people wouldn't remember it. So um, I don't care how you say it, but yeah, share is the right way. But I get a lot of sheer, and and it doesn't bother me at all. It's like whatever. So all right, well, um, welcome to the Hammer Factor Hot Seat. We have on this episode three-time King of the Hammers champion, three-time Ultra Four National champion, and the only racer to ever repeat. At the King of the Hammers, Jason Scherer. Morning, guys. How you doing? <laughs> Good, man. Welcome to the show. So we've had a lot of different kinds of professionals on this sport. We've had mountain biking professionals, running professionals, kayakers, coaches, doctors. But you're the first person in the motorsports world um, that's come on this show. So I'm super excited to talk about some cars and racing and something maybe a little off topic here. Well, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be on the show and, uh, you know, look forward to kind of maybe letting people know a little bit more about Ultra 4 Racing and what King of the Hammers is all about. Sick. So before we get into it, um, can you share something with our audience that most people probably don't know about you? Um, Most people probably wouldn't expect that an off-road racer would be uh, a plant-based vegan. (laughs) Interesting. Yep. So how did you get into that? Um, well, you know, I've been into CrossFit for the past 10 years. Um, and believe it or not, I've started off going full paleo, which was actually a lot of meat. And I think one of the first Instagram following things I had was like, uh, like I love bacon or something <laughs> like for the hashtag. Right? So like I, I didn't start off being plant-based or having any of the desire for it. But, you know, when my wife talked me into going and getting a physical when I turned 40 and I hadn't been to the doctor in like 10 years. I go to the orthopedic all the time because I'm broken up and things need replacing and 
you know, stuff. But I never went to like the regular doctor. <clears throat> and so she's like, you should really go to the doctor and get a physical and all this. So I go in there thinking I'm perfectly healthy and I had cholesterol through the roof and all this stuff. And who knows, like really science wise, like what the deal was. But I said, okay, let me try to address that. Of course, the doctors wanted to give you statins and say, you're going to, you know, be on these drugs for the rest of your life and all that. And I was like, no, I'm not. So I tried to go plant-based, um, three and a half months into it. I got my blood work done again and I was perfectly good. Like numbers had dropped down to, you know, below what they would even consider somebody who has a high risk. So I said, okay, this works for me. I've, uh, kept on it. And you know, the side effect was that I felt good. Uh, you can pretty much eat as much plant-based food as you can possibly consume and <laughs> keep your weight good. So it's been good for racing. I feel like I have more energy. Uh, and so that's been good for working out and trying to stay in shape for this stuff. Uh, ironically, like, you know, I don't know if the, any of these worlds collide, but, you know, I started eating cleaner on that side of it. And then we went on and had like a great run the last two years in racing. So I like to think they're related, or at least I'm superstitious enough to believe I shouldn't try changing it. <laughs> well, there, there's all kinds of research out there that talks about not only the physical, but the mental benefits of a, of a plant based diet so there may be something more to that than just coincidence yeah you never know um before racing let's get back to the beginning um where are you from what were what what, what were you like as a kid were you always into racing you know tell us about jason Scherer before you were the champ uh that's a great question so i grew up uh you know kind of in a small town it's not as small as it used to be but a small town in the east bay california it was, uh, yeah, I grew up and it was like 14,000 people and the towns next to me weren't too big, but now it's, you know, 10 times that and the towns around us have grown up so much that the Bay Area is like, uh, just sort of like Southern California now. Um, I played baseball, but I didn't really love it as a kid. And so I wanted to ride bikes with my buddies. And so I was racing BMX bikes. Um, you know, my parents weren't super into the racing stuff. Like they didn't really like that. They liked the team sports, but they didn't really want to go out to the track and drop us off and, you know, kind of deep out in Sonol to go to the AMA track and all that. So, um, did that with some of my buddies. Um, and you know, once I got my license, I had to figure out what I wanted to do for a car. And I really wanted a Jeep cause my buddy had a Jeep. Um, ironically, I started playing baseball in high school again. Like I took a few years off and decided I wanted to play high school baseball. And I remember my dad going, you think you're going to go out and play high school baseball when you didn't play like the last four years and, um, regular, you know, senior minors and senior majors and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go try and did really well at it. Um, I loved it and I had great coaching and I got super passionate about it. And so, um, you know, it's kind of hard to talk about. I don't like to brag about, but I got the MVP award at Dallas high school for baseball and all, all this stuff and just really had a good run. Um, in baseball. And I think that taught me a lot about the dedication it takes to excel in a sport. Um, I was kind of lucky. I went on to play some college baseball, um, and have a good time with that. And then, um, two years into, uh, college, my dad called me and said, Hey, our, you know, business I started two years ago is growing and I have a problem with a couple of employees and they got to leave. And so I need you to come home, uh, from school and help me out just for a semester. And so 26 years later, <laughs> um, you know, we're still running that business together and, um, you know, it's, uh, 
it's been cool because I've been able to afford in a, you know, good or bad way to go do stuff for fun. Like I, it was dirt bikes for, you know, the next four or five years, competitive trials, uh, enduros, uh, things like that. And then when rock crawling competitions started, I had a buddy ask me if I wanted to go help him with, you know, spotting. Cause I understood how it worked in a trials competition where you had to, you know, score your dabs and everything. And and go through gates and he said would you help me because I know you know and understand the theory and all that and I'm like yeah I'll go it'd be fun so I went out there and I was hooked instantly like I said okay this is this is fun I've got a jeep I want to turn my jeep into doing this and then they started having rock crawling competitions all the time and I was out there competing in the very same jeep I got when I was 16 years old I was then you know 23 or 24 and competing in that jeep out in the on the rock crawling circuit and uh you know, that was a good time. We really had fun with it. It didn't take long until it was full buggies and, you know, kind of higher technology stuff. You, you say that with like almost a, uh, you know, they, the one that I had was pretty trick. Um, it was built by John Nelson and everything, but most of them were pretty low tech. <laughs> um, and, and then, you know, then King of the Hammers came about. So, you know, it was a, it was a quick ramp up from being a little kid racing bikes to, wow, you're going to go you know, through the desert and high speed across all this stuff and try to start racing it. But it was kind of like the perfect storm. It was the trials bike stuff through the rocks and it was the high speed stuff you always wanted to do in the desert, uh, all into one event. And I was like, wow, this is a, this is something I really want to do. When was your first hammers? That's a great one. I, I was so lucky. My buddy, Jeff Mello, who I'm still friends with, great friends with today, who, you know, was, was one of the original rock crawling guys. Um, he's won like, I think you guys got over a hundred wins in the different combined stuff between the rock crawling and, you know, all the way back to like the tough truck series and, and stuff like that. Um, he invited me to go down and ride with him as a co-driver. So I did the 2008 race as a co-driver. Um, I had been in 2007 so you know how you had a spotter in the rock crawling days where they pulled on the rope or whatever so my mm -hmm. spotter was my double step brother lance clifford however you want a family member him, him and my brother married his sister his wife's sister and stuff so we we get to spend, I, I say it like this technically family but we get to spend the holidays together so it's close enough right right um he was my spotter and i would go to you know, these events with him and he bought a Jeep speed and we started doing Jeep speed racing also. And then I was his co-driver. So we would kind of switch back and forth. He got in with pistol Pete to be his co-driver for the Baja 1000. And Lance said, dude, you can buy a seat for five grand to sit in, in Pete's truck on the left side. Cause Pete had three seats in there. And I was like, really? And it seemed like a little bit of a crazy thing to spend five grand to go ride along in a race. But it turned out to be like a life-changing event. I spent five grand to go start first in trophy truck in the 40th Baja 1000. And I was on the left. Pete was in the middle. And Lance was on the right. And Lance did the GPS work. I did the gauges. And I got to experience what a trophy truck can do in Baja with, you know, a talented group of guys that drove that truck. And we came in fourth overall, or at least fourth in class. Um, and you know, it was like, okay, this is, this is really what you want to do, but you know, the budget 
even Pete's budget was out of my league, right? I mean, he had a chase truck on it with a trailer and one other truck, which is about as low budget as you can chase for the Ball 1000. But he had a pre-runner and a trophy truck and spare parts. And that was like, yeah, we're, you know, we never do this. Um, <laughs> what, what kind of numbers are we talking about with that setup? Back then, that was probably, you know, $350,000 worth of equipment rolling around down there and, you know, maybe 10 guys. And now it's probably three, you know, three to four times that just to go do the race, oh, like wow. the right way. You know what I mean? Not, not per race, but like the equipment costs have gone up to that. I mean, I think these new Mason trucks are over, you know, they're, they're starting to hit the million dollar mark on some of the stuff. So, you know, the, the trucks are more expensive to not have full chase crews stationed at every pit with all your stuff wouldn't really be a race strategy anymore. And, you know, we rolled around with the fuel drums on the trailer and tried to get the fuel in the truck and shit. It was like, <laughs> it was crazy that you could actually, you know, put together a race effort that way and still finish that well. Um, but it was badass. Like it was a super good experience and I saw what you could do. And then I went and hit King of the Hammers. It was really four months later, right? So you had November 2007's Baja 1000, December, January, and then February is King of the Hammers. So here I am, you know, four months later, jumping in the passenger seat of Jeff Mello's Jeep, which wouldn't go 75 miles an hour because you couldn't keep it straight long enough to go that fast. <laughs> I mean, the speedometer might have said that, but the tires weren't pointed in that direction long enough to be able to hit the speed. Um, over ground so we were cruising along probably about 60 and then we hit the mdr course and we were probably going 40 and it was like a buck and bronco all the way across the desert it was like almost ridiculous right but we finished it and i looked over and i was like this is it this is like everything i've wanted to do in one thing so i turned around i finished that event and i sold my rock crawler which was really hard to do because i really loved it it was uh, it was called tiny and i had bought it from John Nelson and his mom and they they had built such an awesome car at that time and it was like the lightest weight it was a Volkswagen powered rock crawler but it was really you know everything about it was just perfection for what it took to do the rock crawling stuff and I sold it to somebody so I could afford to go build a king of the hammers car I wanted it to be a twist at first where I could do both the the like middle class of the rock crawling stuff and King of the Hammers. But after going to one event with a LS seven, um, powered, you know, motor and a rock crawler, I was like, all right, you can't competitively rock crawl right. something with this much horsepower. Um, and so I just decided to say, screw it and go for one thing. So I went for King of the Hammers and, uh, that was, you know, that all happened in that same year, 2008. Um, Mike Schaefer helped me. Jesse Haynes helped me. We built, uh, you know, we had to change the roof line after we built the car because my co-driver, Jason Berger, was too tall to fit in it. So we had to recage it. We redid the rear suspension based on the guy that um, bought a Class 7 truck. Bill Coons had a Class 7 truck, the guy that started Torchmate, um, the, the plasma cutter company. And we looked at the rear suspension, and I looked at mine, and I was like, dude, we just need to cut my car off in the back and redo this. We built this car, and we changed it like two or three times before the race in 2009. It was like everything was a rush. We couldn't get parts fast enough. I mean, it was it was like the full, the full rush of all the stuff to try to get it done. Um, and yet, when we, we went to the Hammers 10 times and practiced before the race, um, 
and we had it pretty dialed in. We had a couple of catastrophes like two weeks before the race. Like literally I, I broke an upper link mount two weeks before the race and wrapped the axle housing around in a circle. All the shock mounts, all the hydraulic lines, all the drive lines, everything were just destroyed. And I wasn't quite sure we were going to be able to pull it off and get it all back together. But we did, and um, we went out there and we won the race. Yeah, the irony of the whole thing was we were leading the race. We were racing this other dude named Easy Rick, Rick Mooneyham, who was, you know, the class of the field in the rocks. And we might have been the class of the field in the desert. And, and he taught me so much watching him go through the rocks that we kind of picked that up. And we've never really forgotten that lesson, right? And then we got to Sledgehammer, which is the hardest obstacle really on the climb. And we rolled over. And we were leading the race. And we rolled over. And the fans went to try to push the car back over. And I said, wait, I don't think that we can get outside assistance. I don't think the fans are allowed to roll the car back over. So I called, I actually heard somebody come in my driver's window and say, call race ops and ask them if the fans can push you back over. Cause we were going to get out and start winching it over, which would have taken forever. And I get on race ops and I remember Jeff Knoll coming back on and saying, Hey, you can roll the car back over. And the speaker on the radio played outside. I didn't realize that. I thought it was only in the headsets. <laughs> and the whole, the car just instantly stood up. And when I looked over to see who had made me say all that, it was Pistol Pete. He was standing there. Oh, and he told, he, he basically saved our race. He got us that win. Like, we wouldn't have won if we had gotten out of the car to winch it back over. So we went on to win that thing. Um, second gear, I was the only gear left in the transmission. You know, we drove across that thing at like 80, 80 something miles an hour on the rev limiter, just clipping the rev limiter for the last 30 miles of the race, trying to get back to the finish line because on adjusted time that easy Rick started 99th, like the last guy to start basically. Um, I guess the hundredth guy would have been the last guy to start, but 99th place and he was in second. Um, but not on adjusted time. So we had to go give it everything we had to make as big a gap as we could in the last section. And, uh, you know, I, that was when I was hooked. Like, I knew that when the pressure was on and we had to drive that Fissure Mountain Trail, like something else came out of me. Like it wasn't just me driving at my race pace that we were doing. It was like we could we could step it up and, and kind of go to the next level when we were really under the gun. And, and there was a reason to go that hard. And then, then I was like, okay, this is badass. Like that was the full adrenaline rush. That was the That was that crazy feeling you get when it's like, you know, everything's online. I think the kayakers get that when they drop off of something crazy and they go, you know, the, the conditions don't go like, you know, simply. And all of a sudden you have that full, full adrenaline rush, like it's all or nothing right now. And, and you got that in that section of that race course where it was, you know, 20, 30 miles of everything you got. And, and it's, it's probably the most badass feeling in the world because really the rest of the time you're an idiot if you drive like that, <laughs> right? You can't because then you break your car and everyone says, well, you were, you drove too hard. Mm -hmm. um, but if you, if second place doesn't pay anything and there's only one king of the hammers and you got a chance to go win it with 20 miles left to go and you put everything on the line, I think it really shows like that's the one time in life you get to go for it. You know, it's the, like take the reins off and go for it. So it was bitching. Let me back up here a, a second. So a lot of people know what the Baja 1000 is. I'm sure, you know, that it's had tons of media coverage over the years. I mean, I can remember growing up, 
you know, watching that race and seeing the trophy trucks out there. But what is King of the Hammers? So someone who doesn't know about it, describe it. How would you describe it? So first of all, it's physically located in Southern California near 29 Palms Military Base. It's uh, 29 Palms has been called the most uh, inhospitable terrain in California or, or maybe in the U.S. It reminds people of Afghanistan. So if I think if you like 29 Palms, you'd like Afghanistan. <laughs> um, it's terrible, right? It's hot. It's cold. It's windy. There's nobody that lives there because it's an awful place to live. Um, and the conditions suck, but that harshness and brutality is made for a really beautiful raw desert. Um, it's got rock trails that were cut in by rock crawlers um, in the 90s and, and, and through to today, right? They continue to build more rock trails. All they are is just canyons of, of gnarly rocks that have fallen off of the ledges of the canyons, and you're driving that base of these big boulders. Um, there's trails like Sledgehammer where... We've been dr- running those trails for 15, 20 years. They look identical to the day that the r- first guy walked through there because the rocks are so big that the vehicles can't move them out of the way. You, you just drive up on them, and uh, they're, you know, they're just massive. Um, and, and the reason I say that is the train is so rough and so gnarly and so abrasive in every way that what they've decided to do was something we used to say, let's go run sledgehammer. And that would be our day of going down to the hammers. Now the race, you know, as it started off, it was some of the trails and a desert loop back. Then it was all of the trails and a desert loop back. Now it's a huge desert loop followed by all of the trails twice in one day to make it like kind of, I mean, I guess from the outside, if you'd never heard of it and they said, hey, the race is two times through all the rocks and a a loop of desert, you'd say, "Okay, that's what it is. But when you started off saying it was so hard that there was days we couldn't make it all the way up Jack, we would turn around, we would do this like on one of the trails. And now we just run it twice in a day. It's like it's gone to the point where it's kind of ridiculous how how, uh, you know, gnarly it really is. And I. I think that the best way to explain it is that it's the it's the roughest race course of all the desert races that I've ever seen because you know sands maybe some places that get blown out like in sections of San Felipe and, and stuff like that it's rough everywhere it's not an easy graded road or set of whoops that you just stand on it and go through it's technical everywhere it's a lower speed ability for desert racing because you can't get up to the the high speed numbers for high mileage stuff. And, uh, so it's very, very technical and it's, um, it's very important that you see every little obstacle on the trail because there's little rocks that stick out of bushes and stuff that'll take your tires out and cut you, you know, ruin your race basically if you don't, if you don't stay on your game. So the attention span thing of racing King of the Hammers is the highest level of any of the races I've ever done. You don't get a break. You don't get a caution flag. You don't get, a timeout. There isn't a high speed section or a, a pave section like there is in the Baja 1000 where you'll have to connect a couple of roads by a 60 mile an hour pavement section for 20 miles where you d- take a deep breath. There's no deep breaths, there's no rest, and there's no um, chance to catch your breath. So last year and this year, we ran about the same times, about six and a half hours. And I've told everybody it's, it's a six and a half hour full on sprint. So it's that's what makes it so hard. I know that, I mean, the terrain is savage. I mean, 
as someone who's been there a few times on the media crew, the only way that I can get to my spot is by helicopter. So that right there is saying something. Unless I was in the car like you were driving, there was no way to get me to the spots without a helicopter. So No, no. I mean, you know, the UTVs will get you to the rock trails. But once you're in the rock trails, you know, you wouldn't be able to. I mean, the guys are racing the UTVs and they, they think they're doing the rock trails, but they're going down them all. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's gnarly. It's good stuff. I don't want to get too in the weeds here as far as talking about tires, motors, chassis, and whatever. But this year at Hammers, uh, there was a trophy truck division um, that that raced on, and they didn't do all of the trails. They had, they didn't hardly do any of the canyon right, trails. Right. You know, they definitely had an easier route. But what's your thoughts on that, of, of bringing those kind of cars into the event as someone who's done both? Well, it's cool. I mean, I think, you know, the the only differential between what they did and what say like King of the Motos have done in the years past is that King of the Motos did run the rock trails and, and that was a, a deal where you got to see all the top and maybe not all of the top because I know it was a conflicting schedule thing. It was off season for some guys. So you didn't get the Graham Jarvis's and stuff, but you did get, you know, Cody Webb and, and all the, all the really good American sensations out there to see um, how they could do, you know, Colton, the, the, depth of the field was great but it wasn't necessarily all the hard enduro national guys the trophy truck guys got the other way around it was the top 25 of the best trophy truck drivers in the world um you know i think there might be 60 trophy trucks or something that might race you know in the thousand this year or whatever still the top 25 of those guys was at the hammers and so i think they got a real shake of who who was there and who was the best at the conditions mm-hmm. um i I don't know that it's the litmus test of how good you are at the hammers. I think it's just another desert race. It's more technical, but the fact that they can't do a single rock trail doesn't, I mean, it's just a cool event, but it's so cool because we were using that day as contingency because that's when our class had an opportunity for that. So all they did is move, you know, the, the, basically the everyman challenge and in 45 4800 classes which are kind of like our our feeder class to the 4800 although it's grown they're growing so fast i think people actually like living in that class um because the cars are a little more affordable mm-hmm. so that class is really doing well um but they just moved that race to wednesday which i mean honestly it didn't change anything for anybody and then they let the trophy trucks run on thursday and it drew fans into the hammer town not that we needed more of them because there's so many freaking people there but um you know it drew it drew which is it's good for the industry though right um and it got a kind of i don't want to say this in a negative way because it kind of comes out that way but the desert guys didn't like the rock guys for some reason um i think they thought we were just you know low tech uh maybe too redneck for them and they were too good at fabrication and all this stuff and you know, there was always like a rub there, like, oh, you know, it might work for King of the Hammers, but that's not going to work in Baja. And I always remembered that, like, you know, we'd go down there in the Jeep speeds and it was really no different than anything else. But they didn't they didn't cross over well. I think when they came down and saw our event, I don't want to say this and like, you know, this is the part that sounds negative. The Baja 1000 has millions of fans. 
but they're pretty much there because they live there and they want to come out and see the event. The people who go to the hammers are hardcore. You have to have an RV to stay in. You have to, I mean, you can't tent camp at the hammers because the wind will be 80 miles an hour one night and it's, you know, 20 degrees out. And the next day it's, you know, that day it's going to be 80 degrees out and your sunburn when you go to bed in the freezing cold. I mean, it's gnarly. People hate it, right? <laughs> um, but in order to get to the hammers, you have to be a hardcore fan. I think for the trophy truck guys to show up and go, holy crap, there's way more people at this event than there's been at any American trophy truck event at any, you know, stage of our career. We just went to the biggest event we've ever been to and we weren't the number one show. We were, we were the side show for the ultra four guys and not in a bad way. I mean, they're, they're race pace. I mean, they're faster than us. They're better than us and all that stuff, but they don't do the same thing. So, you know, people want to go watch them, but they also wanted to see the, the ultra four race. And I don't, I don't think that, you know, the, the worlds are so different anymore about the speeds that we're obtaining the car builds, right? They're all, they're all pretty close. I mean, I look at cars like Paul Herschel's car. That could be, if he if he was building a trophy truck, his quality of work wouldn't have changed, and vice versa, right? They're they're at that same level of the the Mason trucks and the Geyser trucks now. Some of these top Ultra Four cars, there's there's no real difference between them all. And uh, you know, I think that that kind of they saw that they got to go out there and go, huh? I mean, I I saw the expression on some of their faces when they're like, huh. These are actually pretty nice, and I guess it's when they say that it's obviously when somebody must have told them that it was a bunch of pipe, you know, poop pipe welded together and <laughs> you know square tubes or something. So um, I don't know that that kind of gives you a little bit of that feel where where the two worlds combine. But the trophy trucks are probably part of the show for a long time to come, I think, because people really like seeing them. Very cool. Well, I'd describe. When people ask me about hammers who know nothing about car racing, you know, the way I describe it is it's like Burning Man for gearheads. I mean, it is a passionate fan base out there, no doubt. You know, I've got to see a lot of racing. I've been lucky enough to, you know, I raced some motocross and did have done a bunch of mountain bike racing. I've filmed a lot of those events. And there's something about the style of the top guys and girls of all of these events that it makes it look easy. So for instance, in a mountain bike race, you know, the fastest guys aren't always hammering. It just looks like they're floating, you know, when you're in a, and, and as I've watched and sat and videoed and, you know, I pretty much filmed every racer out there. I've noticed that your style is, completely different than all of the drivers out there there's not a lot of smoking tires you're not constantly on the throttle you know it's just little bumps here little bumps there can you speak to me how you developed that style and i don't want to i don't want you to give away your secrets but what's your secret sauce how do you how how did how did you develop that i i don't really know and and i don't understand it when i watch it on a video that it's different than what everybody else is doing because it seemed so my videos suck like they always look like I'm going super slow but then I'll watch like Tom Ways or you know Nick Nelson or somebody go do the same section and they're badass they're just like you know three inches over to the right kicking a roost all the way around the corner and I was smooth through the center and I look at it and I'm like oh that sucks they look they must have been hauling ass through there 
but then there's no difference in speed or we're in the front or whatever. And you're like, okay, it still doesn't really add up. Right. I think I don't like to slide the car as much with the rear. And I try to utilize the four wheel drive kind of driving style of, of maybe being, I think the proper term for it would be like a little neater on the, on the way I enter the corner, I might break a little harder on entry and then drive off a little bit cleaner on the exit because the I'm using the four-wheel drive and I'm not oversteering it quite as much into the corner. But it sure doesn't look nearly as badass. I mean, <laughs> Shannon Campbell can go into a corner. I don't think he hits the brakes. I think he just turns until it's sliding sideways and he stands on the gas again. And it looks way better and it, it, it's, you know... It, it, it's all the cars all over the place and kicking around and you're like wow you know shannon's hauling ass and i've had it happen to me where they had a race down in texas two years ago my co-driver jason berger was with me and we had we had something happen to where we had a late start that day and there was no rush on qualifying they didn't care when we qualified they said hey look we got a long day ahead of us we got like 140 cars to go qualify whenever you guys want to drive down to the qualifying area and go ahead and go. Um, well, like Lauren Healy, Shannon Campbell, a um, couple of guys, you know, Waylon Campbell, they all got down there early. And so we were still at our trailer watching uh, the qualifying guys go. And I watched them and said, holy crap, they are hauling ass. I have never seen anybody so wild and crazy as watching Shannon – and then we watched the Gomez's jump the jump a little too hard, and Marcos's front bumper stuck into the ground on the landing, and the thing slipped like six times. And I sat there and I looked at Berger, and I'm like, "Oh my god, these guys are freaking crazy! <laughs> like, I can't. We we're gonna get our asses handed to us, right?" And uh, we got in the car, and you know, I think we were like putting tires on and doing stuff like that. Like, and it was there was no rush, there was no pressure to win to go or whatever. We got our, our shit together. We went down there. We got our qualifying and, you know, mood, mood on, which is a different mood than race mood. I don't know what it is, but you got to get yourself in that vibe of like, uh, you know, every every tenth counts, right? So you're kind of like on your game. You're braking as late as you can. You're on the gas almost with the brakes on so that you're not giving up anything when you go. You know, it's just like one of those deals where you're, you're all in and uh, got that feeling, took off from the line. We went out there. And we had a relatively boring looking run. Like it was like, okay, whatever, you know, and we get across the line and they're like, yep, that's pole. And I'm like, what? (laughs) How's this possible? (laughs) So, um, I don't know what it is about that smooth kind of stay in control, but it, it seems to work. I just don't know what it is that causes it. Um, but it isn't great for show. I know that that's been a a thing that we have kind of like, well, you know, um, you know, I'm way down on power to those guys too. On the on the normal motor, I have a big motor, and we run it at the short course races. Um, but the, it is a it is a pretty mild motor, and I always wonder if there's something to having it track all the power it can down on the on the ground versus spinning the tires a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that looks a little different. Um, you know, I think it was a little bit more of a roost tire when I was on the Nittos than it was on the BFGs. They're a little bit smoother too, but 
you know, the trackable power of that is, is a big difference. But yeah, I don't know what it is. It's funny that you say it because I watch these videos. I want to try to post them up on YouTube and do stuff. And I'm like, eh, it looks kind of, <laughs> it doesn't look very exciting. You know, it's not, it's not quite as cool. I mean, there is certainly a different style. The, the the sound is different. The level of RPMs, just the just the just the way you're hitting the throttle. I mean, it's you're you're hitting the gas at just the right time. You're hitting the brakes at just the right time. That's the way I chalk it up. I mean, I I really don't know, but it is certainly a different style, and it's just uh, it's just pretty cool to watch. It's uh, it's some finesseful driving. A lot, a lot of it. It may, maybe a lot with the car, maybe a lot with the motor, but you're hitting the gas and hitting the brakes at just the right time. So. You know, it's interesting you say it. I, I don't get a chance to tell people about it very often, but it's such a rough sport that you would think that it's not a graceful sport from inside the car, and it, it's so weird that the two worlds collide in there so harsh because you're beating yourself up to where you can taste blood in your mouth from the smashes, right? And when you're in the rocks and you're trying to pick a line, it's like the most beautiful thing if you can slide sideways between two rocks and just miss them both by less than an inch and get into the next spot and hit it right in the right spot on the tire. And you're like, that is so hard to do and such a graceful art to be able to, to snake through and, and run the rocks that way correctly. Um, that I really find like that's my passionate part where it's like such a bitchin' excursion when you do it right. And it looks like somebody performed like a, a perfect pirouette into, you know, a pond of, you know, three feet around or something. And, and you go, yeah, that was sick, you know? And, and I don't think most people can even understand it from the outside because, um, you know, that a, to have a level of appreciation for it would be hard and B like to really see, what just occurred would take, you know, a really good um, viewpoint and a vantage point, and that's a little bit difficult from the rocks. The drone game is really changing that because people are getting to see what we're doing from above and how tight it is. And so the filming of King of the Hammers, um, you know, Steve Fisher's group and everybody that has helped so much, I know he's not really doing it right now, but he he changed it. Like that that whole thing, you know, it, that's what's taken the sport to the next level. It's been a bitch in sport that nobody knows about. Rock crawling's really badass at high speed, but nobody knows how badass it is. And and desert racing is also badass. But you know, until the coverage goes out there, most people don't really know what it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the helicopters are cool, but they're limited, right? Like you can have two or three helicopters flying around in one general area, and if you don't know where to be you miss the good coverage or, or, you know, you miss the pass for the lead or whatever that's going on in the desert. Cause it's hard to track it all when you've got, you know, these drones are all over the place following us up and down the trails. There's, there's cable cameras going up and down sledgehammer and stuff. And, and now you're getting these images that we've never seen before of, you know, what's actually happening. And, and you can see that ballet that's playing out in the rocks and it's, it's, it's a masterpiece if you do it right. You know? Yeah. I was, uh, I had I had a pretty much a 15 minute live drone shot last year at Hammers. I can't remember which canyon it was. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but it was it was amazing. We got a couple cool passes, and I mean, I it, I'm really lucky because I get to see probably more of it than anybody. You I know? know, and so that's why I have that perspective on your driving style. You know, and I our goal here with the Hammer Factor is for people to you know 
for successful athletes and drivers and professionals to share their genius with the world. And somebody, sh- if you ever want to get into car racing, watch Jason Shearer drive his car because <laughs> it's, it's cool. Um, thanks for saying that. I don't know if that's true, but thanks for saying that. Shifting gears here. Let's talk about the car. Give us give us just the basic stats. I, I don't want to get too much into the gear, but tell us about the weight, the travel, the horsepower. Just tell sure. us about the car. So I built the car in 2014. Um, the lead fabricator, his name was Dan Trout. Um, he helped me lay out everything as far as ergonomics, motor and transmission placement, um, and a lot of the chassis design. We did the front end independent suspension, trailing arms, rear suspension, link mounts, all that kind of stuff in SolidWorks with um, Dallas Lund. And he and I, you know, went back and forth to get what we wanted. This was version two IFS car for me. And uh, first one I built in 2011. And so this one was was everything I learned from that one. And, and I took some risks on some things I thought would work better on this. It's around 4,400 pounds fully loaded with us in the car. Um, it has a crate LS7 with a Tilden camshaft packed valve springs. It is dry sumped with an ARE dry sump, um, both to get the motor down lower and to solve some of the LS7 oiling issues that they had from the factory. Um, and it made a little bit more power with the dry sump. It has a very mild camshaft. It's a very mild motor. I think factory is 505. I think with what we've done to it, it's about 550. I think because it's tuned well, it has... Dan Trout built headers, a good intake, um, things like that. It's probably getting close to 575 horsepower, but it is a very mild motor. Um, it has an extremely wide power band, so it makes good power from 2,500 RPMs all the way to 7,500 RPMs. So it's a really nice um, power plant for being user-friendly. You can, you can come out of a corner sideways in second gear at 3,000 RPMs just like you can do it at 6,000 RPM. So it makes it for um, sort of an electric feel to the, to the power plant. Um, it's got three inch, no, sorry, three and a half inch Fox bypasses on it um, with, with two and a half inch coilovers all around. And the coilovers have the DSC valves in them. And so the suspension is crazy. The front doesn't have as much travel as you think. It's 18 inches, which is very low by the standards of like a trophy truck and everything. Um, the reason for that is basically the differentials, the differentials are so wide that, so the differentials are so wide that our A arms can only be so wide before we run out of space and the car would get too wide. And, and that matters because we do something that most of the trophy trucks and, and pro fours don't need to do, which is to lock and unlock the front differential a hundred percent. And so we use an ARV air locker that completely locks up the differential. And that premise right there sort of sets up what you're gonna build for a front end. Um, that and wheel back spacing and scrub radius goals that you have are, are basic building blocks of how you, you're gonna assemble that front end. Um, it runs a transfer case that is connected all the time to the front and rear axles with no coupling. So it's 100% engagement of the front and rear all the time or as maybe people would say, a 50-50 coupling. Um, 
it has a standard, um, I shouldn't say standard, but it has a uh, Deedon Bear or Reed Racing, I guess it is now, um, Turbo 400. So it's a three-speed automatic transmission. It's not a very fancy transmission, but it is bulletproof. Um, the The guy who builds them for us is one of the, you know, highest expertise guys that I've ever met in the transmission industry, um, Greg Harrison, and he's built the transmissions for us for the last five years now. And I, I knock on wood every time I say it, but we've never had an issue because the dude is just so solid. And that comes off of a season where we had 13 transmission failures. So mm-hmm. once we switched to this guy, we have been in good hands. And, uh, you know, the, the other part of it is, is um, nothing runs hot in the car. So we teamed up with C&R Racing out of Indianapolis, and they built us all these coolers for the car that are so much better than what the industry standards were. And on top of that, we added more cooling and everything. So we, our power steering fluid is cool. Our motor oil is cool. Our transmission fluid is cool. And I'm talking like 160-degree transmission temps oh, wow. and 120-degree um, power steering temps and you know 180 degree engine temps in the heat of battle and i think all that stuff has really helped us i mean literally stay relaxed in the car because you're not dealing with what oh my gosh we're we're heating up and everything's going crazy and it raises your blood pressure um to you know a big magna flow muffler on the car that keeps it super quiet and you don't hear the crazy noise of the exhaust that makes your blood pressure again go up and have that feeling in your head like you're being chased by the cops but <laughs> it uh it, it does calm you down and i think that all that stuff is uh really good about the car the the travel and the rear feels like endless like we don't bottom out in the biggest holes it's set up and we, a lot of tuning went into that to where it just doesn't bottom out but we're using all the available travel and so you don't get a lot of uh, zingers in the car. Um, it's still rough in some of those sections where you just, you know, have one rock here and one rock there and you're just, ugh, 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 you know. But um, in general, it's a pretty damn good ride. We took maybe two times we took big hits this year. Um, you know, one of them was like almost blackout lights. <laughs> you hit so hard, to, you know. You, you didn't see for a second and you're like, wow, that was crazy. I almost went out, you know? So when they're big, they're big, but, it, and that's a trip because that's something that I remember with the trophy truck is nothing hurts, nothing hurts, nothing hurts. And then all of a sudden the ones that hurt, it's like, holy hell. Um, and, and this is turning into the same thing. It used to hurt all the time. Um, now it only hurts when it hurts really, really bad. So that's kind of how the suspension gets that good that you're able to absorb the 95% of it and, and you're only left with 5% that you have to bleed through. And that's a burly five. It is. So it's getting worse. <laughs> what's your car worth? So they're all piles of metal and they all have about the same drivetrains in them. And the pedigree of the car is worth something. And I know that sounds funny, but if you had the identical car and you had never finished in the top of the field in it, it wouldn't be as valuable as somebody who built a car that is winning races. And I think it's true of Eric Miller, Lauren Healy, um, Shannon Campbell. I mean, the Campbells. And I, I remember when Eric Miller sold his car for $225,000 and I was like, 
damn, that's a pretty good price tag. Although it's a pretty damn good car. Like, I don't know. They kind of go hand in hand with Eric's been able to drive that car up onto the top of the box and, and certainly podiums at KOHs year after year. Um, Shannon's done the same. And, you know, what is a five-year-old car that's basically, you know, nothing more than steel and, you know, love? I don't know. Maybe 250, 300 something. I don't know. But I don't have any interest at this point in selling it unless I guess somebody came along with a big enough price tag because it's such a good car for what it does. And I wouldn't want to build anything much different than it. And it's so dialed in to go build another one just to say you built another one at this point doesn't make a lot of sense. So somebody would have to really come in with a number that made a lot of sense, um, you know, to, to get me to part from it. And, and it means something to me. That car has like an emotional connection too. So it'd be hard to give up. Mm. No, I can see that. What about getting yourself ready? What about getting your body ready? You know, hammers is a eight hour event. What are you doing to get like, you know, obviously you got a bunch of guys working on your car, you're getting everything ready and, but what are you doing to get yourself ready? I would say two months before the event, um, I go five days a week of CrossFit. Right now I go every day I can, but some days you just can't go. Um, I go five days a week, pretty hardcore, um, and then I mix in, you know, 30 tire changes, you know, (laughs) crap basically um, to get ready for the race. You know, you're doing a lot of – prep in the shop and working on stuff and everything else i i think the week before the race is also critical and i think people forget that and you know that might be the secret i'm giving away today but i make sure that we're in bed every night by 10 30 11 um i get up early still so i try to get up at you know six at the latest have a big breakfast couple cups of coffee to kind of feel like 100 percent and then I bang it out hard. Like I try to go do our pre-running, our prep on the car, our you know short course stuff for practice on qualifying to make sure I know where everything is. Um, and and I push, 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 push. And I try to do as little bullshit standing around as I can because I feel like it's a real drag on you to stand around and talk to people all week. I love them, but I got to get my shit done and take care of our stuff. And it's a little selfish, um, but you know that's priority and I think everyone respects that when you're down there for a goal that you know you're not just there to hang out so I don't and I don't get any flack from it but we get our pre-running done Um, we make sure we eat really well and when I say we I'm talking about my co-driver and myself we're both uh, he's an he's a way he's a amazing athlete right he he's I think he got in the top 100 again this year for his age group at the CrossFit Open. Um, he owns uh, Dreamtown CrossFit in Truckee. And, you know, he's he's as hardcore as I am about having a goal and wanting to achieve it. And I think the two of us really uh, work well because I don't think we go down there for fun. Right. I hate to say that. No, we, no. We, we tell ourselves that the race is fun, and it is. And it's only really fun if you succeeded. I mean, we have a good time and we go home and we go to a regular job on Monday and nothing's changed no matter what happened at the race, as long as you're still alive. And that's all that, you know, it really does 
for you, but the rest of the time it's total diehard executing on a plan. And that's, I don't know. It's a good, it's a good thing and I do enjoy it, but it is, it is a, it's a hardcore feeling of just going after that one thing and not, you know, it's not a real the the fair kind of event. It's 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 just go out there and, and execute on your on your mission and and you know if you fuck it up, it's on you. Yeah. <laughs> so that that pressure's hard and and so you know we we put ourselves in that position because we do like it and we feed off of it. But the same token, it's a it's a tough place to get your head into. And uh, you know, in the car, we we have Camelback with water in it and we have a camelback with a protein shake in it and it's always tough for me because i have to start drinking those protein shakes the week before the race because they're they're all anything that's all stabilized like that's going to be milk based mm-hmm. and since i don't drink, don't drink dairy right. i gotta drink dairy that whole like 10 days leading up to it so i don't get sick during the race <laughs> um and then <clears throat> you know we we go through that race um most of the time it's you know 50 60 degrees during the day um at the hammers this year when we left the starting line it was 27 um so you do 27 degrees out and 120 miles an hour for your wind factor no windshield in there right and you're freaking freezing i mean literally you're freezing like you're you're having trouble getting your limbs to function at full tilt right when you're trying to turn your hands as fast as you can and they're not moving you're like (laughs) Um, so you know you you this year we didn't drink anything. I mean, it's terrible, but six and a half hours, we took two sips of water and I never drank the Camelback with uh, protein in it, which kind of said a lot to me because I didn't feel faded from it. It shows you you're hydrated, your body's in good shape, you're physically able to handle that. And, you know, that period of, uh, you know, a six and a half hour run doesn't sound like a lot to a lot of people, but, you know, to put out that much physical exertion and basically be a, uh, you know, fasting the whole time for that and, and to be okay after that was cool. What was interesting was we finished the race. I did autographs for about two hours and somewhere in that two hour session, I started to hit like a wall and I crashed and it was like, Oh God, I got to go eat something. I literally couldn't hold the pin to sign more <laughs> autographs. I'm like, all right, I got to eat. And so we had to take off and go back to the motor home and eat something. But, uh, that's basically, uh, that's basically it for me. That's how I take care of myself. I try not to, um, you know, do anything too much. And, and definitely I think the key is getting enough rest. I think that's been hard to do down there. Um, you know, there's people that come and bang on my door at 1130 at night cause they want to hang out and see you cause they haven't seen you since last year when they banged on your door at 1130 at night. And, and you're like, you know, you want to get up and go hang out with them, but you know, you got to stay in bed and get some sleep. So it's a, uh, it's a little tricky, you know, through all your racing, what's been the pinnacle? What stands out as, 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 your best moment it's hard there's two of them and and the two of them are the 2018 uh king of the hammers the 2018 king of the hammers was redemption from 10 nine you know 10 more attempts at winning it since the fluke thing that everyone kind of could say about 2009 or some guy that didn't you know really necessarily have any desert racing experience goes out and wins the 2009 king of the hammers and you know, the guy wasn't named Shannon Campbell. So it was like, who is, you know, is it just a fluke or can anyone do it? So to go do it in 2018 to me was a bit of redemption. Like 
kind of justified all the effort. And it felt really good to be able to say we did it. And and we had had a tough run the year before there where we may have made a wrong call on letting the race play out the way it did. So 2018 had a redemption factor that, you know, most people don't have any idea about. But for us, it meant something because we knew we could do it and it was bitching to be able to go prove it. Um, and the second one, the only reason it's not my number one is because my family wasn't there to enjoy it with me. My father-in-law was, but, and my brother from another mother, Adam was there, but, um, <clears throat> and Oli and Jeff Mello and a lot of my buddies were there. But when we went after last year's triple crown event and it was King of the Hammers for the rock crawling event, um, it was the Mint 400 for the Desert Race, which Adam uh, McGow, my my crew chief, rode with me in. And then going to Crandon, Wisconsin, for the Big House short course race in the fall. Um, and saying, okay, I've always wanted to win a race at Crandon, but like, I'm a rock donkey. There's no way we're going to go run a short course race. And then having them open it up to a class for 4,400 cars where we could race against each other. And I remember showing up there. We had the points lead, but not by a lot over Paul Horschel. And I followed Casey Curry on the opening laps of practice, and he was pulling away from me by so much that I said, holy shit, I'm never going to be able to, you know, catch these guys. Um, and, you know, this track is tricky, and the car feels like it's loose, and I'm all over the place, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then to reel it in figure out the car setup by working on it in the pits and changing a bunch of stuff until I said, okay, this is what I wanted. And I remember the guys kind of looking at me like, dude, you're driving it. You got to tell us what to do. And I was like, I know, but I'm not sure what to do, but I think we got to do this, 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 and this. And they're like, it's a lot of stuff. Are you sure? And I was like, yep. And we went out there, we won the Friday night race, um, which wasn't really the championship, a triple crown one. I didn't really know that at the time, but they, the Friday night race didn't mean anything other than five grand, um, which was cool, but it, it was a 45 minute heat race or something, a 45 minute race. Um, and it was super intense between Paul and I, and I think we both thought it was for points, but whatever the Sunday race, which was like, you know, 50,000 fans, um, grandstands looked like, you know, they were jumping up and down when he went through turn one and we lined up on that starting line with a land rush start. And to pull the whole shot going into the first corner and never lifting all the way down the front thing and like kind of looking into my side out, out the side window when I was sideways and seeing the whole field behind me. And I was like, holy shit, we're leading this thing. And then to lead it all the way to the checkers was, uh, dude, I don't know. It was crazy. We got done with that, that lap and I almost didn't want to stop. Like I just wanted to keep running laps, you know, <laughs> I was like, we did it, we did it, we did it. Um, and, and so we won the triple crown and we run, we won King of the Hammers and we won the Crandon race all like in one year. And I was like, dude, that was, that was probably the best that like I'll ever get, you know what I mean? Um, in, in one season. Cause I don't think that there'll ever be so much pressure on trying to win an overall thing. I mean, it's, you know, the championships and ultra four kind of, regional races and stuff and you kind of have to have some luck on your side and here and there and you know it all plays out differently but this was that was the one that meant I, I guess it is the most pinnacle one in my career it's just that it's 
it's shitty that my family couldn't have been there because it was like the first week of school. So they had to be there. They're not registered and all that stuff. So I wish they were there. But other than that, that was awesome. Sick. What about your yeah. lowest moment? What's at the bottom? Um, you know, people won't get this, I guess, unless they're an athlete or they've tried something and failed. <laughs> and I know a lot of your fans that watch the show are, so maybe they'll they'll get this. But we used to drive home from those events that we didn't do well in. And I would go over in my head what went wrong and what didn't work out over and over and over again to where a drive from, you know, New Mexico to, to Northern California would feel like it took five minutes. And, you know, I would just beat myself up um, so badly. I mean, to the point where you're like, you know, holy crap, dude, like I got to get it together because you can actually like spiral or you're like, this isn't healthy to keep beating yourself up you know and so then I tried to take away from that what I need to do to get better and then you know learn from those things but there was quite a few of those um where you were you were really hard on yourself and and very frustrating you know I the uh, championships that we lost super crawls two super crawls in a row that we felt like we got snaked out from underneath us by bad bad luck or bad circumstances that, you know, you want to try to figure out how you can resolve them because ultimately the only way that you lose them is something that you did wrong. You can't blame everybody else for them. And so you start taking it to like, okay, what do I have to do to be better about this? Um, I do think that, you know, people will never understand how hard I am on myself. Like we went up and had a, a bad qualifying run at Reno last year. Um, I, overshot the first corner so then i tried to make it up in the second corner and biked it up on two wheels tried to make it up in the third corner took the wrong line missed the braking zone on the fourth corner and was so pissed off by the end of it i hit the rock pile and bounced through it sideways and it looked like some badass thing and you know i think it had two hundred and fifty thousand views the first night on facebook because it was so crazy looking but i was so freaking pissed at myself i almost punched the airbag out of the steering wheel on my truck on the drive home i mean i was I was literally trying to rip the steering wheel off my truck because I was so freaking pissed and we were third, you know, and, and it was because I was pissed at myself for overshooting the first corner and then not getting my head back in the game. And, uh, I don't, I don't think people have any idea that, that I'm that mental about that kind of stuff because I want to run a clean line. So when you do see me all kicked all over the place, I'm actually pissed at myself for not being clean and it helped me. This is the thing. This is the takeaway that I think is so important is it helped me at King of the Hammers four months later, five months later, because when I went out there for that qualifying lap, I knew that I knew exactly what had to happen and what didn't have to happen and what happens when something goes wrong about sticking to your game plan because it had just been reinforced in my brain so hard from having a failure. So those types of little things that most people might not think are a big deal or, you know, maybe people would be happy with a third place in qualifying and they could walk away from that and not beat themselves to death. You know, I couldn't even freaking sleep that night. I, the anger didn't really leave me. Now the race, the race didn't go our way at all, but that had nothing to do with it. Like the race, you know, we had some circumstances with like red flags. I don't get upset at all. When, like a course worker, red flags, the race, and then you get put in the wrong starting spot and you start in 23rd and you're supposed to be in 13th. And you're like, eh, I'm not going to argue about it. And I'm not upset about that. That's a, 
those actually are out of your control from race ops making mistakes. That stuff doesn't bother me at all. It's it's nothing. But you're when you do something wrong, that's when I'm pissed about it. You know, when, when you're in when you're in that spiral, when you're, you know, like you talk about, it's you know, you can really get yourself down. What do you do specifically to get out of it? Like, what advice would you offer? I mean, because you know, a lot of our listeners out there, I'm sure, are trying to compete in something trying to do their personal best or to win something like and then you don't do it puts you in that rut like what do you how do you get out of it okay so i figured something out there's a bunch of bullshit in advertising that says give it your 110 percent there is actually no 110 percent you only have 100 percent so it's false advertising to believe that there's more than 100 percent to be given as soon as you learn that you can only give it your best going into every corner. You can only give it your best going into every jump. You can only do your best. And you have to stay within that. Because there is no heroism that starts at above 100%. It's only mistakes and it's only risk. And so you don't get more out of a corner than the perfect corner. And the perfect corner is the 100%. So trying to make up for what you've screwed up is impossible. Once you've burned a corner, once you've biked it up and had to save it, you don't get that time back somewhere else. And that's the biggest takeaway. And don't let yourself become such a head case with your helmet on that you forget that because it doesn't come back. It's just a matter of eliminating the rest of the mistakes. And unfortunately, I think that's what racing really is or a perfect lap really is. It's not a perfect lap. It's an elimination of all possible mistakes. And I think if you look at it that way, you have a better chance of uh, succeeding. Hmm. Interesting. I like that. There is no 110%. Just keep it throttled at a hundred because everything after that's just mistakes and, and unnecessary risk. Last question here. What, uh, if someone wanted to get into ultra four racing, someone had an old four wheel drive around or whatever, how would you recommend them going about getting in a race? You know, how do you do it? Um, okay. So that's a great question. I think right now there are quite a few older 4,400 cars for sale. There are also, um, quite a few, of the 45, 4,800. I really like the old Legends cars that Dave Cole built because I feel like they were Jimmy's chassis. The chassis are readily available if you ever hurt one. They're simple crate motor programs with spider tracks, housings, and then Atlas transfer cases, Fox shocks. I mean, they're basic parts, and they run really good. So I think those cars are probably the most bang for the buck to go out there and have a good time. But if you had something, you, if you wanted to go build something on your own because you have something, like you kind of asked in your in your question, I think that going to the hammers is the most critical point. Just go first. <laughs> Sounds funny to say it. Go down there first and understand the area and the terrain before you start coming up with ideas on how to build your car and you haven't exactly seen what you're going to get yourself into. Um, try to team up with people that are going down there to practice, try to team up with maybe the shock company you're going to use and see when they're going to be down there testing, um, and see if you can, you know, hop in with one of the guys that's doing a shock test and get a ride. Um, you know, go walk the trails. My co-driver and I walk trails, you know, walking trails shows you exactly where everything is. And, and so, you know, go out there, take the time to, uh, 
to do it. And when you start building your car, um, you'll have a much better idea of what you're going after, like what the goal is instead of, uh, you know, ending up there with something that doesn't necessarily need to be there. There's a lot of theories on what, what's working, but if you look at the last seven or eight years, it's all the same guys in the same kind of cars. And so, you know, don't, I don't know that you need to go build a helicopter to go compete in the hammers right now. Like that doesn't, you know, hovers right. across rocks, <laughs> go build a car just like everybody else has been building right now and go out there and out drive them because it's now turned into a driving race, not so much a technology race. Um, that's stabilized on that front with, you know, quality parts that aren't failing. Um, so yeah, that's what I would just suggest is get down there and go check it out and then figure out what you want to do exactly. Well, what's next for you, Jason? What's on your schedule? You know what? I leave Saturday, so it's what it's Thursday morning here. I got a couple of days here until I leave for Baja. I'm going to Trail Emissions with uh, Cameron Steele and his crew of Desert Assassins, and then all of our good friends from you know Cody Wagner to Kurt Leduc to everybody that's going down there. We're uh, 21 trucks, I think, and we're going to hit every mission in Baja oh, nice. uh, down to Loreto and uh, see some great stuff. And the coolest part about this trip taking both my kids and my wife and uh we're gonna spend you know 10 days in mexico together um and a lot of people wouldn't do it you know a lot of people are, oh it's dangerous it's scary you're gonna take your kids and all that kind of stuff and, and i'm so excited to show them you know how other people live and the beauty of baja uh, and give them a little appreciation for the bubble that they grow up in every day and, and what they take for granted because they don't know any better so um you know i'm excited for that and, uh, you know, I love the people down there. I think it's, it's such a wonderful way of life and a wonderful group of people and their, their hospitability and their, um, sweetness and their demeanor and the way that they live off the land and the things that they, they do. It's just, I really have an appreciation for the people that live there, the culture, the lifestyle. And I think it's the most beautiful place I've ever been. Sands maybe, Lake Tahoe or something like I just, you know, it's just so beautiful, um, to be in that element. And so I'm excited to share it with my kids. who have never seen anything, but maybe Cabo or something, you know, mm -hmm. so they're going to get to go see the real Baja. Super rad. Well, where can our listeners follow you? Is there, are you a Instagrammer or a Facebooker or where can people follow you? I'm an Instagrammer. I do better with pictures than typing. So, uh, follow me at Jason share 76. So it's, uh, S C H E R E R 76. Um, so yeah, check me out there. And then, uh, I'm going to do a couple of things on, on, on YouTube this year. So I've got a YouTube channel that my daughter started for me cause that's how that works. So we're going to do some blogging because, um, we've got a couple of cool builds coming up of things that we're doing and, uh, she's going to help me document the trip a little bit for trail emissions. So we're going to, we're going to get started on it down there. And, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll share all that on the Instagram page so you guys can find the links to all, all the YouTube stuff. Well, this has been a rad interview. Value bombs galore out there, man. Congratulations on Hammers this year. Enjoy your trip, and, man, I hope our paths cross soon. Absolutely. For sure, at Hammers next year. I'll see you down there filming. All Thanks right. for everything. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Jason. All right, take care.